This edition of the Bio Report is brought to you by the California Technology Council, providing discounts on products and services essential to every startup. For more information, visit californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The growing problem of antibiotic-resistant bacteria and the evolution of next-generation sequencing technology is giving rise to new approaches to combat what's become a serious global health threat. Epibiome, which describes itself as a precision microbiome engineering company, is working to develop cocktails of bacteriophages to use in animal and human health. We spoke to Nick Conley, CEO of Epibiome, about the urgent need for new therapeutics, the renewed interest in phages, and Epibiome's unique approach to address the problem. Nick, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about Epibiome and and bacteriophages and the approach you're taking to develop ways to combat pathogenic bacteria without the use of antibiotics. I thought Maybe you could begin with the situation we face today and in terms of the problem of antibiotic resistance and, and how we got there. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, if you ask people today what the biggest problem facing humanity is, you get answers like terrorism or global warming or nuclear warfare. And while all of those are challenges, you know, I think the one that we're imminently facing today, the one that poses the biggest threat to humanity is antimicrobial resistance. and you know, there's been a lot of news lately on this colistin-resistant E. coli showing up in the U.S., a lot of media coverage. But I think if you talk to someone in the field, what you'll find is that they will acknowledge that this has been a problem that's a long time coming. So we've been on a steady march to a bad place uh, for some time. A lot of it has been the overuse of antibiotics or the inappropriate use. And I think that uh, agriculture is probably one of the biggest areas where we're seeing inappropriate and overuse. The problem with antibiotic resistance seems to be getting worse, and it's a a problem that drug makers have had difficulty addressing. Why have there been so few antibiotics coming to market? Is that a matter of economics or science? Yeah, I think it's actually a combination of both. Uh, On the economic side, you'll hear arguments about pricing. So if you think about it, Antibiotics are one of the most beneficial classes of drugs that we have today. Yet, you know, if you go to get a prescription for amoxicillin filled, it might actually be cheaper for you to pay out of pocket than to actually pay your copay for the drug. And this is a problem with society not pricing antibiotics commensurate to their value. Antibiotics are, you know, unlike, uh, say, a vaccine, where the more people that get immunized, the better. With antibiotics, it turns out that every time an additional person takes an antibiotic, it slightly decreases the value for the rest of society. So, you know, there's this interesting mismatch between the price 
of antibiotics and the value. And of course, you know, when, when you look at pharma, they have to decide their, their research focus, their areas of focus for their own pipeline. And, you know, antibiotics don't look so attractive uh, when you compare them to things like uh, new drugs for oncology or for high blood pressure or for cholesterol. But that's only one part of the story. And the, the, the second part of it is science. And it turns out bacteria are just really crafty organisms. So they've been around long before humans were here, and they'll be around long after we're gone. Uh, these bacteria, many of them divide every 20 minutes. They don't copy their DNA with perfect fidelity, so they get lots of mutations. And these are spontaneous mutations. But every time there's a mutation in the bacterial genome, it gives that bacteria a chance to evade uh, an antibiotic, for example. They also do this thing called sharing sharing plasmids, so they can actually share DNA with one another, um, and and this DNA can confer the ability uh, to pump out a particular drug or to break it down, and and in many cases that drug can be an antibiotic, and uh, when it's an antibiotic, often the result of that is resistance. The really insidious thing is that uh, these bacteria don't collect antibiotic resistance in single units, they often collect them as cassettes. So imagine, you know, a bacterium acquiring resistance to multiple classes of antibiotics at once. And, you know, that's one of the challenges that we face today, these multi-drug resistant bacteria, whereby we have nothing in our arsenal uh, to combat them. You're developing cocktails of bacteriophages to combat infectious bacteria in both agricultural and, and human health. Phages have long been used to treat bacterial infections, but this has been much more widely used in, in the Eastern Europe than in the United States. What are phages and what makes them attractive for use to combat bacteria? Sure. So phages or phages, either pronunciation is correct, uh, are bacterial viruses. They are specific to bacteria. They work by binding to specific receptors on the surface of bacteria. They inject their DNA through this syringe-like apparatus, and this DNA hijacks the bacteria's cellular machinery. So they actually use the bacteria's cellular machinery to make more copies of themselves. Once they're done making copies, they'll burst out of that bacterial cell, killing the bacteria in the process, and these copies can go on to infect new bacteria. So it's really like a natural form of antibiotics with amplification built in. These phages exist everywhere. They outnumber bacteria 10 to 1, and they kill about half of the bacteria on the planet every two days. So they're extraordinarily lethal. Now, in the 1920s and 1930s, Eli Lilly and a few other uh, pharma companies uh, in the U.S. had robust phage research programs. Um, the, th the thing is, penicillin was discovered a short time later, and everyone said, why the heck do we need these bacteria-specific viruses? if we can just give someone penicillin and kill everything. And of course, at the time, the only good bacteria was a dead one. Today, we know that's not the case. Uh, but the, the really interesting part of the story is that, you know, when penicillin was discovered, you know, the Soviets were behind the Iron Curtain. They didn't have access to a lot of the small molecule research going on in the U.S. And they continued to research and to deploy these phages for human medicine. So if you were in the Red Army, as part of your rations, you were given a small vial of phages, which if you had uh, gastrointestinal uh, discomfort or, or some issue, you could drink the phages. If you had a wound, you could pour them on the wound. And 
uh, although a lot of the studies in, in Eastern Europe weren't done according to, say, Western medicine, maybe Western scientific standards, um, there's plenty of anecdotal evidence and, and, and even, uh, even larger studies, sort of without the, the careful controls, that indicated that phages uh, did have therapeutic benefits. Um, I think one of the challenges uh, for the Soviets was that uh, a lot of the diseases that they were studying at the time were self-limiting. So they would often, uh, you know, people would recover with or without the phages, and it was difficult, you know, without good controls to show that the phages were efficacious. And of course, there was no need in Western medicine for phages because we have small molecule antibiotics. Today, we're realizing that maybe it's time for another look. Actually, maybe it's past time for another look. Can resistance develop to phages? Absolutely. So there are a number of mechanisms uh, by which bacteria can gain resistance. There's a really nice paper by Professor Sylvain Moineau at Laval University, who's on our scientific advisory board. One of the favorite mechanisms that bacteria like to employ is to lose that surface receptor that the phage is binding to. And there are a few different ways that they can do that, but the, the, the consequence of that is that the phage can no longer bind, and therefore it can't infect. Um, now, if you're clever, you might think, hey, we could use this against the bacteria. Several bacteria have surfaces on their structure that are essential for them to be able to cause disease. So imagine if you targeted a phage to one of those structures. If it binds, fantastic, you kill the bacteria. If the bacteria evolves away from the phage by losing that structure, well, now it necessarily it gave up its, it gave up its ability to cause disease. So in this manner, we can force bacteria down uh, evolutionary pathways whereby resistance is not a bad thing because they've become un incapable of causing disease in the process. And that's what we proposed for our Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation grant, which was funded. EpiBiome refers to itself as a precision microbiome engineering company. These are popular terms today among venture investors, but what do you mean here by precision? Yeah, so that term actually encompasses two things. Uh, the first is that we specialize in bacterial profiling. So we can take a sample, it doesn't really matter where it comes from, and we can tell you accurately, often to the species level, and semi-quantitatively, which bacteria are in that sample. And that informs the second part of what we do, which is the microbiome engineering. So our technology allows us to specifically eliminate single bacteria at the strain or the species level, in a complex microbial community, leaving all of the rest of the bacteria intact. And if you think about it, you've got all these researchers studying the microbiome, and they're identifying all of these exciting bacterial targets, targets that are associated with colon cancer, for example. Uh, but at the end of the day, how do you prove that that bacteria is, in fact, the cause of the disease if you don't have a tool to specifically eliminate it? Of course, you can always add that bacteria to, an, to a mouse, for example, and show, oh, the mouse develops colon cancer. But what you'd like to do is to specifically eliminate that organism as it already exists in a population and show that that population now has decreased incidence of a particular disease. And phages enable that. Well, walk me through your platform. You, you developed a platform for designing a phage cocktail to to target specific bacteria, but 
How does the process work? You, you start with sequencing to identify disease-causing pathogens, but what does the sequencing actually tell you, and how does it relate to the identification of a of a phage that can be enlisted in a fight against them? Sure, sure. So, in order to in order to discover phages, uh, these phages against bacteria, what you need are you need isolates of the pathogenic bacteria, the bacteria that cause disease. Or maybe they don't even cause disease. Maybe they're just problematic in some sort of process, like a fermentation reaction. In order to get those isolates, you need to find samples that are positive for them. So, for example, if I'm trying to kill bacteria in the udder of a cow, I need to look at a lot of different milk samples from a lot of different cows. Now, in microbiology, the technique to isolate bacteria is, is selective culture. So I can grow this milk under very specific conditions and isolate a pathogen of interest, let's say Staph aureus or E. coli or strep. But if I have all these milk samples, it would take me a long time to do selective culture for every organism on every sample. So I can use next generation sequencing like Illumina technology to very rapidly identify those milk samples that are positive for the bacteria that I want to kill. Once I identify the positive samples, I can culture them using standard microbiological techniques. And now I have isolates. I have isolated cultures of the bacteria that I want to kill. And that's really the first step in the phage discovery process. The second step is what we like to call phage fishing. So we go out and collect things like farm water runoff or soil or manure. These are really rich sources of phages. We can isolate this naturally occurring uh, diverse pool of phages, and then we can co-culture them with the bacteria that we isolated, for example, from cow milk, and just take advantage of the natural property of viruses. Out of that huge diverse pool of viruses that we went out and, and got from nature, we can select for the ones that are most effective at killing the bacterial isolate that we want to eliminate. Those, those phages will naturally propagate because that's what viruses do. And we can then isolate the phages and pick the ones that work best at killing the bacteria of interest. There's a, a mind-blowing number of, of these phages and you use high-throughput screening to identify them. But where do you get them? Are, are you using the existing library or do you have some source of phages that allow you to find novel ones? Yeah, actually nature. Uh, provides, uh, as you pointed out, a, a, a huge diversity of phages. So one of the things that people are talking about today, you know, CRISPR, gene editing, those sorts of things. And while modern biology has allowed us to do manipulation of biomolecules like DNA um, with, you know, an unprecedented uh, effectiveness relative to the techniques that existed in the last few decades, uh, there are limitations to human engineering, whereas nature gives us a huge diversity of phages. And when you're sampling a multi-dimensional landscape, and, and that's really what we are doing when we're trying to target bacteria, it's best to get as many shots on goal as possible. So it's often best to allow nature uh, to tell us which phages uh, are, are most effective. So we find them, you know, out in out in a dirty lake. We can pull them out of the sewer. We can find them in soil. And 
these are the ones that we use. Uh, we can apply selection. We can apply selection pressure to select for the phages and the the progeny of the phages that have more ideal properties. So they can be a little bit changed in the lab, but we're not doing any conventional genetic engineering. Well, where are you in, in the development process, and do you have lead product candidates at this point? Yeah, so we've already taken our phages uh, through a mouse model of the disease that we're tackling. Uh, it's bovine mastitis. It's an inflammation of the udder tissue in dairy cows, usually caused by bacterial infection. It costs the global dairy industry about $35 billion per year. $2 billion in the U.S. alone. And there's a nice mouse model of the disease. Uh, we've shown that our phages work well in that. We'll actually be in cows in the next couple of months. So this is a pilot study. It's, uh, it's a fairly small-scale study. But what we'll do if we see a really strong efficacy signal is we'll do our GMP manufacturing, which is a requirement to do the, the, the later trials field trials. Um, once we get our GMP material, we'll do much larger scale studies, uh, multi-site in many cows, and then we'll file our new animal drug application uh, with the FDA Center for Veterinary Medicine. Is there a faster path to revenue with a uh, veterinary product than with the human therapeutic? It's not so much a faster path. In fact, the level of rigor that's required is about the same. It's a very similar process going into animals as it is humans. But what it is is it's cheaper. So you can bring a new animal drug to market for about $15 million. You're probably well aware, as are your listeners, that you know it may cost a billion dollars to bring a new human drug to market. And you know I, I'm not saying that's why we chose this problem. In fact, we chose this problem because if you think about antibiotic stewardship, one of the biggest places to make a difference today is to reduce or eliminate the use of shared class antibiotics in agriculture. And when I say shared class, I mean those shared between humans and animals. And this disease, bovine mastitis, is the number one reason to give a cow antibiotics today. And there are about 300 million dairy cows on the planet. So, you know, this is a, a great place to both make a, a really big difference, um, stop applying widespread selection pressure on bacteria in agriculture, save our precious human antibiotics so they're effective when we need them in the hospital, and uh, but also demonstrate to the FDA that this is a viable therapy, that it is scalable, and uh, really set the stage for for a later human program. A few years ago, we saw the passage of the GAIN Act, which was designed to provide incentives to drug makers to develop new antibiotics. Do you stand to benefit from the GAIN Act? Yeah, we, we've looked at that a little bit. Um, I think that the biggest place where we've benefited, really the initiatives from the current Obama administration, uh, there's a lot of effort uh, to, uh, to encourage the FDA uh, to, to facilitate the development of alternatives to small molecule antibiotics. So in our interactions with FDA, they've been very receptive. Uh, it, it appears that the environment is a very good one for a startup developing alternatives to antibiotics. Um, 
you probably also uh, are aware that the White House recently hosted uh, uh, a microbiome uh, conference, uh, an all-day event uh, where they had uh, some of the, the big thought leaders in the field. And, and, you know, I think that a lot of this starts with public awareness. So, you know, consumer demand for change is a very powerful thing. You were nurtured in the sequencing company Illumina's Incubator, and you've attracted a, a group of investors associated with funding next-generation sequencing companies. Uh, how much have you raised to date, and, and how far do you expect that to take? Yeah, so Illumina Accelerator was a phenomenal program. I highly recommend anyone who's interested in starting a genomics company to look into it, you know, tying your fledgling startup brand to, you know, a uh, uh, the market leader in, in genomics uh, is, is a wonderful thing. Uh, we've raised a little over $6 million to date. Uh, we've accomplished uh, a huge amount. We've hit uh, two of our three milestones. We should be uh, closing in on the third one in the next couple of months. And I think that we've garnered considerable investor attention. We'll probably be raising our B round very shortly. And with that B round, that will allow us to get all the way through our field trials and to submit our new animal drug application. And when do you expect to turn yourselves towards human therapeutics? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that if we see a very strong FTC signal in our cow studies, uh, I think that that would be uh, a good uh, a good cue uh, to to really start thinking about a human program. I should point out that there is a company, Amplified Biosciences, that currently has a phage cocktail in human clinical trials, uh, both in the U.S. and abroad, uh, for, I believe it's a, a staph aureus cocktail, both for, uh, uh, for skin infections, it's the type that occur uh, after burns, uh, as well as uh, for chronic sinusitis. So these are patients that have already had surgery and failed conventional antibiotic therapy. So that's definitely something to watch for. Before we go, I'm wondering if you can just talk a little about colistin-resistant bacteria and the lessons there. Yeah, so a lot of people have heard about this colistin-resistant bacteria. Uh, this is an antibiotic that was introduced in 1959, I believe. And as an antibiotic, it actually wasn't that great. You know, it was good at killing E. coli, Klebs, the coliform infection, but the problem is it caused substantial kidney toxicity. Now, this antibiotic wasn't really used much for that reason, but around 2004, I guess it was, we started to see a lot of carbapenem resistance. Carbapenem was our last-line antibiotic for, for many types of infections. And when that resistance creeped in, what it did was it made this colistin, this antibiotic that caused kidney toxicity, become the last line of defense. Now, like I said, colistin, not a great antibiotic, but the one thing that was remarkable about it is that for five and a half decades, there was no evidence of resistance in a form that bacteria could share with one another. And, and that's really profound because in the 1960s and 1970s, it took an average of 10 years from the time when an antibiotic was first introduced to the time when resistance was first observed in the clinic. Today, that's about one year. 
But this antibiotic survived five and a half decades with, without any evidence of resistance. And a lot of, infi- a lot of infectious disease experts thought, hey, maybe bacteria just can't become resistant to this antibiotic, perhaps because of the mechanism, something like that. Unfortunately for all of us, they were proven wrong by the action of a handful of Chinese pig farmers who fed about 12,000 tons of colistin to their pigs every year, fatten them up. Now we get to pay the price for that bacon with human life. So this colistin resistance was observed late last year on Chinese pig farms. About three months later, it was observed in a hospital in the Netherlands. And I guess it was about two and a half weeks ago, it appeared for the first time in the U.S. in a patient in Pennsylvania who had a urinary tract infection. And it's really just a matter of time until bacteria exist today that are resistant to colistin as well as many of the other antibiotics in our arsenal. And, you know, this is a, this is a, a profoundly worrying development. And that's one of the reasons that, uh, that I and some of my co-founders left our nice, uh, our nice Silicon Valley jobs in the tech industry to start this company. Nick Conley, co-founder and CEO of Epibiome. Nick, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.